Capturing off-camera experiences of everyday harassment. Photographer Eliza Hatch retelling stories on film in the hope of giving women the courage to speak out. They were getting closer and closer and it was very uncomfortable. The thing that everybody told me was not to say anything. One of them kept on staring at me and then later he sat next to me and started touching my stuff and he tried to put his hand under my shorts. You know, no one intervened. She was only 15 when she was walking home from school and was approached by a man in a van. Um, I noticed that he actually parked up the van, got out of the van and opened the door. Uh, the conductor tapped my ass and they carried on following me. His hand was going up my skirt and I, my body somehow froze and I was in full-blown panic mode. Cheer up love, a phrase sometimes shouted at women on the street. They're photographed in places where harassment has happened. Cat calling to curb crawling, this campaign covers it all. Hello and welcome to the Cheer Up Love podcast with me, your host, Eliza Hatch. Joining me today is the amazing Maya Michelle and Phoebe Montague from 100 Women I Know. I have been eagerly following the incredible work these women have been doing over the last few years as it's a cause that's very close to my heart. 100 Women I Know was created by Phoebe and stemmed from a personal project asking 100 women about their experiences of rape and sexual assault. It has since developed into a growing organisation with its research leading to an award-winning short film and book. Phoebe has now joined forces with a team of survivors who together host events and workshops. Included on the team is Maya, who is a trainee clinical psychologist working for the NHS. She believes in the power of storytelling as a reclamation of power and a path away from shame, and so shares her own realities of growing up with domestic violence. She is a full-time cheerleader of impressive women and joined the 100 Women I Know team in 2018, hosting panels and supporting the team. She also sits on the board for Don't Sleep On Us, a movement that champions change makers of colour. Just before we get into it, I'd like to do a trigger warning for this episode. We will be discussing themes surrounding sexual violence and rape, and we also will be reading out an experience of sexual harassment towards the end of the show. So if you think it's going to be too triggering for you, then it might not be the best episode to listen to. However, if you think you are in a place where you can handle these topics today, then I would love to encourage you to tune in, as it's a really important discussion to have, and the work that Maya and Phoebe and everyone from 100 Women are doing is definitely, definitely worth listening to. So without further ado, I would love to welcome Maya and Phoebe onto the show. Oh, well, thank you so much for taking the time and coming together digitally to do this, despite all the technical difficulties. I really appreciate it. I'm so happy to be here, as, as hard as it was. Mm. Yeah, so how have you been finding the last months? How's everyone doing? Oh, how are we doing? How have we been <laughs> finding the last months? Um, you know, at one point I felt like I knew how I was doing. And I could answer that question. And then I went through a phase of, again, having not knowing at all. Then I went through a phase of knowing how I was doing. And I feel like mm-hmm. I'm back at being a bit unsure of how I'm doing. <laughs> I think I'm anxious and a bit overwhelmed. Yeah, no, I, I totally feel that. kind of feel the same. Like, I just think there's so much uncertainty at the moment. Yeah, just a bit of a mad time. Don't really know how to feel. But definitely um, overwhelmed is probably the word I would use for this whole time. Yeah, overwhelming is exactly how I think all of us have been feeling in, in lots of different ways. And it's been an interesting time. And also we're all working in fields which are quite intense and like emotionally draining. Mm. Um, and I'm so inspired by the work that you both do with 100 Women. And I was just wondering if you could tell me a bit more about the origins of the project and also what started what kind of prompted you to to start the original questionnaire Mm. Phoebe 
Um, yeah, sure. I think for me, like, I kind of went into this project like as a really personal, like, exploration into my own experiences and kind of wanting to feel, I suppose, like, less alone and, and feel that, you know, I wasn't kind of the only one who had had these experiences and, I suppose, find that solidarity. Mm. I started the project in 2014. My intention was to make a documentary and so I put together this questionnaire and put it out mm. there and I think kind of at the beginning it was a little bit slow, like, for people to actually engage in the project because I posted the questionnaire on Facebook and that was kind of the days when people kind of used Facebook more and I found that initially it felt like people would kind of like it but maybe not engage but the more that more people started to engage in, on the post mm. um, it kind of felt like it allowed more people to be like oh okay maybe I can actually engage with this too mm. and it kind of had a bit of a chain reaction I suppose in in my kind of social circle of mm. more people coming forward or, and wanting to be involved in the project mm. um, and so yeah I put out this questionnaire and I didn't never know how many responses I'd, I'd get and then when it got to 100 I kind of capped it mainly because I'm dyslexic and I didn't want to have to work out <laughs> statistics <laughs> and also I felt like 100 was just a good kind of number and so yeah I capped it at 100 and I was quite surprised that Obviously, so many people had wanted to be involved. And um, so that's kind of how the project was born. Um, and from that questionnaire, I, I went on to make an earlier version of the documentary. And yeah, that was the first kind of film that I'd made. And I was just kind of chucked a camera and like told to make something that means something to me. And yeah. that was like what I wanted to explore, I suppose, and felt like the most important thing in my life that I could explore through film. And so I made this documentary um, with a few friends of mine who were who t who told their story um, and who featured in the film. And yeah, technically the film wasn't wasn't great, but like content wise, it was mm. really powerful. Um, and a lot of people responded to it and, you know, felt seen and could really relate to the stories within it and, yeah, the statistics that came out of the questionnaire. Mm. Anyway, a few years later, I basically revisited the project because I realised, like, the power of the, this film just amongst my social circle and I felt that because the film was, like, technically not great um, that I'd like to try and make a film that could actually be taken a little more seriously in terms of the yeah just the pr professionalism of the film and so yeah I, I made another documentary and um, going through the process again with the questionnaire and then we made a second documentary with the help of some students in uh, when I was doing my um yeah my degree piece was this film and yeah then it kind of just spiraled from there really I didn't expect it to like become mm. a project or like anything to come of it I just wanted to make the film and for the film to maybe reach more people than just my social circle. Yeah, it's such a beautiful movement and it's a beautiful film. I was wondering, Maya, did you get involved after watching the film and like at what stage were you involved with 100 Women? I was involved in 100 Women. Phoebe will, well, I'm sure, will cringe at me saying this, but long <laughs> after all the hard work had been done, I have to say. And really, just as somebody, I think... 
I just discovered, I think I discovered 100 women on Instagram and just, mm. I think that a lot of people that have had anything to do with 100 women will know what I mean when I say that I kind of found, found 100 women on Instagram and I just felt so instantly like this was something that I wanted to support first and foremost. I just felt so strongly like yeah. we need this to exist. And so I just started buying, I think I just bought some of the merch yes because it's lovely and you know I really liked the top but also because <laughs> I just wanted to put my money there somewhere and just started kind of following and reading the stuff and it was really empowering for me I don't think I'd realized that I wanted or needed a space to think about and be with the context of sexual violence in my own life yeah the parts of that I had explored and hadn't explored and then I kind of just was really gravitating towards the page a lot and Phoebe and I, well, a hundred women and, and I <laughs> followed each other on Instagram, you know, <laughs> DMing back and forth, often just like, you know, story replies and whatever. And then there was actually a time when something that I was separately doing when I was working in a service supporting young people with mental health problems and I was setting up a group, a group to support, yeah. um, you know, minoritized young people. So people from black and minority ethnic backgrounds, one of a better way of putting it. And I was really frustrated about my own experiences of racism. And Phoebe saw this and put me in front, uh, in touch with Shahira, also known as Afro Glory. Shout out Shahira every time, <laughs> who was experiencing similar frustrations at that time. And she was working with Galdem at the time, mm. so she came in and supported and contributed to the group that I was doing with young people. And then we ended up showing up at an event where Phoebe also was. So then we met in person for the first time. And then not long after that, Phoebe messaged me and said, "Like, do you want to join the team?" and that's how I got involved, really. So it was just through basically being a mm. fan and a and a person that was supported by the community that I was able to get involved. I think, like, what's beautiful, really, is that with the Instagram account, I literally just set it up because I felt like maybe I wanted to document me making the documentary in that process. And then yeah. I suppose once I started to explore mm. how I was making the process, I felt that I wanted to speak about my feelings and like just the experiences of being a survivor like daily kind of and yeah it felt amazing to feel that like mm. other people were kind of relating to my words and that we could like have this mm. community space where people could like come and feel like t this sense of solidarity yeah. and togetherness. I think what 100 Women actually does so well is there's, there's this idea that suddenly that anyone can help anyone explore trauma when actually exploring trauma and sexual violence is a really delicate thing that you have to do really carefully and suddenly putting everyone, inviting people to put all their trauma on a plate and go through it is something that has to be done really delicately. And when I look back now and I think about my own journey in expressing parts of my experience of sexual violence, largely actually, obviously, mm. as we know from previous conversations, Eliza, like a lot, of, a lot of what I found myself able to talk about because of 100 women publicly, I would say, was having been born from rape myself. But I, when I look back now, I think, wow, like 100 women gave me such a gentle opportunity to lean into the part of myself that wanted to kind of shirk that shame and be open about that. But it never felt like getting involved with 100 women or following 100 women was this really kind of raw or demanding, like, mm. let's get all the trauma out. It's just that gradually by being exposed to it, 
and it being gentle enough, I found myself wanting to genuinely and feeling able to talk about those things. And I think that's mm. so lovely that it wasn't because I was, I don't know, not pressured, but mm-hmm. sometimes I think these things can be a bit too demanding that people bring out all their trauma. And I don't think 100 Women does that. Yeah, and it's an incredible space and it's an incredible safe space. And like every time I've been to one of your events or, you know, have just spoken to any of you, it's incredible how much of a kind of safe community that you've built both online and offline. And this is especially so in in the events that you hold. And I, you know, those like open discussions and forums and panels that you do are just so enlightening. I remember going to one of your events at the at the Rich Mix and just leaving kind of like, I don't know, I felt like I was enlightened. It was just the conversations that were happening were so honest and open mm. and the space itself just felt, you know, incredibly yeah. safe. Yeah, ever since then, I've kind of just fallen in love with the work that you do. Oh, thank you so much. That's so sweet. I think like, to be honest, when people say like the events are so amazing and like that is largely because of the community itself. I think that's one of the things that always I feel so like proud and heartwarmed when I look around the space. When you get a group of survivors in a space and not everybody who comes to the events are survivors, but, you know, they're they're definitely allies or people who are interested in in finding more about survivors experiences. I think like naturally there's going to be this sense of empathy and warmth because that's what survivors radiate. I just think it's quite special that when people come together there Mm. is just an energy that's there I think it it is to do with the community like that's Mm -hmm. that's who brings it you know like we can put together an event and Mm. but if if the people aren't connecting and and they can't match the energy of of the space then it wouldn't work and I think that's part of what works about our events and I think it's become a more regularly spoke about thing but especially for our first event I do feel at the time the conversations in wider society were starting to open up more and maybe there hadn't been so much like public conversation Mm. at that time yeah and it's it's mad because it's something which is it's so widely experienced yet it's still viewed as this separate thing this taboo subject a sensitive subject it obviously is a sensitive subject but a subject which is tiptoed around because it has that sensitivity um and it's just not something that is really spoken about um you know according to un women one out of three women will experience some form of sexual violence in their lifetime so it's really like not an uncommon thing yet we always refer to it as this this thing that's so other and so taboo that that we have to kind of talk about it in whispers almost Mm. and obviously that's obviously because it's you know it's horrific subject Mm. but there's also so much kind of shame and stigma surrounding it that I feel like we don't talk about it openly so true and I just think it's yeah it's really important that we have spaces like 100 women where we can talk about it openly and really challenge the stigma surrounding sexual violence Mm. Did you come up against any of these barriers when first releasing the project? I think with 100 Women I Know, we haven't really faced that much backlash Mm -hmm. or people shaming people or people have been quite open to the project generally, um, which is obviously amazing because a lot of people, when they share their stories, face so much backlash and shame and victim blaming. But I think... Part of maybe the reason why people have responded well to the project is because it's been 
quite contained in in terms of it growing from a really like personal project and it's kind of rippled out in to places where people are already mm. interested in kind of this subject or ready to engage mm -hmm. you know there has been occasions like at some of our events where people have said maybe problematic things or asked questions that are just like insensitive maybe mm -hmm. I think generally like we haven't really faced that much shame one one of the things that did happen was I done an interview for Channel 4 News and that went up on Facebook mm -hmm. like a lot of people who obviously had no kind of perception of this person on their screen being mm. a real person with a life and you know not just this this person on the internet I felt that a lot of the comments were like just rude and like shaming and mm -hmm. victim blaming but I also felt like with that there was a lot of people who counterbalanced that I think you know back to the original question of like about about like shame and stigma and like and how it makes it difficult to talk about sexual violence and then thinking about how that does or doesn't exist or has or hasn't existed within the 100 women I mm. know community and I think kind of what you were highlighting Phoebe was that in a way the people that engage with 100 women I know are people that are ready to and willing to and want to explore sexual violence and, and and that then for, therefore might elicit some more mm -hmm. kind of process responses and thought out responses to sexual violence. So ironically, it might, well, not ironically, but, you know, it might not necessarily be the space where you experience most of the shame or stigma. But then you're also describing when you put it out there to the general public, you got all these, you did get more shaming or stigmatizing responses. And I think sometimes the thing that's missed in that or kind of the thing that happens there is that there are loads of experiences of sexual violence in the general community and the reactions to that within ourselves and within people is a lot of shame. And so I think actually often what happens with topics like sexual, sexual violence and childhood sexual abuse as well, I think it happens a lot with is, I think often we experience other people's internalised shame mm. and, and their own internalised stigma, which they can easily express outwardly. And that's not necessarily deliberately meant to be harmful or, um, you know, mean or whatever, but they're expressing their own mechanisms of keeping themselves sa safe. So, for example, if as a woman you've been through lots of experiences where you and uh, perhaps have actually experienced sexual violence, but the way that you've coped with that is to say that it wasn't sexual violence, if you're then exposed to somebody saying that those experiences are sexual violence, then it might be that mm, you want yeah. to put your own coping mechanism on that by saying, no, it isn't, or ridiculing that person for being too sensitive or not being able to take responsibility. Because if that person has coped by telling themselves that, for example, they shouldn't have drank so much and that's all it was and it wasn't that deep, then if someone's take, if it could feel like someone's taken away your coping mechanism by saying something different. Does that make sense? Do you know what I mean here? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. Totally. And it all comes back to the thing of we are not used to talking about this subject in public that much. And that's what I mean when I'm talking about how it's something that's discussed in harsh tones and something that's like a whispered about because normally if anybody airs their trauma in public, people will shy away from it because we don't know how to deal with it. We don't know how to talk about it. We're not trained to talk about these things or like encouraged to talk about them from a young age. We're encouraged to bottle them all up and mm. keep it a secret, basically. Exactly. 
And so when people do speak it out loud, they are inherently taking away that lifetime coping mechanism of keep it to yourself and put it in and bottle it up and, and try and forget about it. And so then that gets, I think that can be really conflicting and mm -hmm. almost put people at heads with each other, you know? So I think for some people, when they see people openly talking about their trauma, it's really confronting because you're kind of taking the lids off their bottles mm. that they've bottled up. And, you know, then that can, yeah. I think people need time to adjust to, um, exactly. what does this, what does this mm. mean for me? Yeah, I think as well, like, it's about meeting people where they're at, like meeting the survivor where they're at on their journey. And that's something yeah. that's really important. Like, I don't think that anybody has to kind of use exactly. certain terminology to identify their experiences or even has to kind of give it a name or yeah. call it what it is um like it's absolutely fine if you know you're not able or you don't want to put certain words to it because like words do hold massive stigmas the word rape the connotations of that for everybody is so massive totally. that like it makes sense as to why people don't want to call what they've experienced rape because mm. what does that say about them like you know this is it runs so deeply and I think yeah what what you said Maya it is confronting yeah. when people suddenly says something that you can relate to is rape and yeah. maybe you haven't thought about it in in that way before yeah it's kind of jarring and I think it does mm -hmm. bring up a lot from, from different people. And I think it's interesting, like, even just now, I kind of went into a bit of a moment of shame because I'm like, yeah, wow, all these people on the internet, I don't even, couldn't think of what they'd said because I'd mm -hmm. literally blocked out all of these words because it when I was reading them, I was just, like, stuck mm -hmm. for a few days processing all of these yeah. words that people had said about me on the internet who don't even know me. Yeah, it's massive. Shame something yeah. that literally sticks like glue, you know? And you don't like arrive at this destination of like this empowered woman. Like the reality is mm. for all the things I have spoken about on the internet, there are still things that I've never spoken about to anyone. And there are mm -hmm. so many women that I speak to. Yeah. I've had so many conversations where we might be talking about something deeply personal. And one at a time, everyone kind of goes, yeah, there's still stuff I'm not telling anyone, though. And so that's I think that's also a reality that we need to hold on to is that just because you open up about one thing, just because you might have certain aspects of sexual violence that you can talk about or will talk about, doesn't mean that there aren't others that you still aren't telling anyone that you might take to the, you know, that you might take to the grave. And totally. I just think that sometimes you can take back some of the power. Cause like, I think ultimately shame makes us hide. So then when we stop hiding or try to talk out loud, we take back, we take back some of the power and that's what happens. Exactly. But growing up as like a, as a woman or a marginalized person, there is, there is so much shame to undo. There is so much that you've quietened down that you're almost going through like thing at a time or section of your life at a time. And that doesn't mean that there isn't so much left, you know, in the cupboard. Like I can say quite fairly comfortable, though not entirely comfortable, saying that there are still instances of sexual violence that I don't feel able to talk about out loud, that I don't know that I'll ever talk about, even though I know that I have the exact right people that I could that would never judge me that would give me comfort and warmth, but somehow saying that out loud will take mm. away 
that one thing that I just want to leave in the denial box, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's totally fine. Like We should be able to hold space for all of those things and we should be able to address things that, you know, aren't commonly spoken about and also leave space for the things that maybe are too hard to talk about. But it's like breaking Mm -hmm. down those barriers and those huge societal barriers that have been there for you know and it's just doing that like bit by bit where we can begin to address these things that have been so kind of like shrouded in stigma and shame for such a long time it's not about just laying everything bare like opening up your heart and soul and telling every single person every single part of you it's just about being able to get to that place bit by bit um yeah address things aren't that aren't commonly spoken about i think one thing to add as well is you don't need to disclose or speak about what's happened to you to be a survivor or to be in spaces with other survivors and I think like what's special is that a lot of the time when we do events and people come together people don't necessarily always speak about what's happened to them or sometimes they do and people have kind of said you know I had this conversation after going to your event and this thing came up that I haven't been able to speak about and that's really amazing but also there's a lot of people Mm -hmm. who just feel comforted by the fact that they can be around other people who like whether or not we're speaking we understand each other and like we don't need to demand disclosures and people's stories what you said Maya about there's certain stories that you just don't want to share you know that's absolutely fine and I just think it's important that everybody feels they don't have to voice some things like some things can just stay with you and it's it doesn't have to be something that you know you reveal to people and some things are just too Mm -hmm. big to even try and process yourself and so yeah sometimes it just feels easier to put it in a box Mm-hmm. but that's why it's so incredible mm-hmm. that we have spaces like yours where you can you can come together and you can share and you can not share and you can just be surrounded by people who are sharing their experiences and you can feel more empowered over time mm-hmm. to get there bit by bit yourself it's so incredible because it doesn't demand anything of you the hundred women i know it's a space for you to take it all in and feel solidarity with other people who've experienced this this thing that you may have also experienced a hundred women it strikes an incredible balance of raising awareness about this issue and, and bringing light to sexual violence whilst kind of normalizing how we have open conversations about it did you ever expect so many people to come forward and share their own experiences like were you surprised at the reaction that it got I think a lot of people have asked me this question and and in prep like every time I think about this question I sort of try and think back to the when I first put out the questionnaire and when I first kind of opened up the conversation and I think in my gut a part of me knew through my own experiences and how I'd witnessed like the behaviour of men and boys to myself and like people I knew, people I didn't know. I, I think I knew that how, how common it was, but I think I didn't know if anybody really wanted, like had desire to speak about it because it felt for so long people just didn't speak about it. So it's a tricky one. I'm not really sure if I was shocked by 
the amount of stories I think I was shocked by like people wanting to come together but I suppose in a sense like I shouldn't have been shocked because I wanted to open the conversation I suppose I just wasn't sure if other people would join me and and when I did feel that other people Mm. wanted to speak about things I was like oh wow this is really affirming like yeah um to have these conversations you know we need to broaden the understanding of what constitutes sexual violence or sexual Mm -hmm. assault or rape because there's so often because it is so stigmatized I think people don't want to put terminology to what they've experienced or to to kind of even label it and I think allowing people to own something whether Mm -hmm. or not Mm. they want to like give a label to it is empowering we have Mm. to accept and welcome everybody's story and like try and remind people that everybody's story is valid if something's like affected you or even if something hasn't affected you uh, until Mm. maybe years later like we often know that with sexual abuse that happens as a young person often there's like sleeper effect and you just keep going and block things off and you don't really come back to them until maybe years later when you start to have a little bit more understanding Mm. totally so how do we tackle and destigmatize this like do, how do we have these conversations with the people in our lives and with generally with everyone to tackle this stigma when i was listening to thieves just then i was thinking about that aspect of things where where people don't want to put a label to what they've experienced and i know that i've had those feelings one of the things that's really frustrating that about that dynamic that people end up in including myself is that one, obviously that's totally fine to not want to put a label to something. Of course, like I don't think we need to label any, everything in the way that we do anyway. But I also think that sometimes the reluctance to put a label on some of these experiences, for example, the label rape, is that somehow you might be kind of approaching these labels, trying to categorise these experiences at a time when you're most trying to identify yourself or trying to feel most empowered. And so then there's this responsibility that like, if I call it rape, then apparently I'm supposed to be able to do something about that because if I call it rape and I don't do something about it, then how powerful can I be? But what's really unfair about that is hardly anything's done if you mm-hmm. do call it rape and if it is categorical, yeah. you know, even if they, you can you know, prove it. When we know that as a woman it's, or you know, as to be honest with you, as any victim of rape, it's so hard exactly. to get anything done about it. It's just so frustrating to think that for lots of people they can't own their experience because then they think they have a responsibility to do anything about it when what we know is they'd have a damn hard time of doing anything about it anyway it within our justice system within our within the structures that we have available to to people totally. that have been a victim of sexual violence and a, you know it's such a frustrating thing where you think oh like you know it's not on you to do something mm, about it because it happened to you you know like exactly you suddenly think there's this like responsibility yeah it's this responsibility to to show that you are truly empowered or powerful or independent or that it's that's not really the equation but do you hear me you know what I mean I hear you and it translates to all different forms of life and it goes across the whole spectrum of sexual violence whether that's being catcalled or sexually assaulted in public place or in private it really transcends that whole spectrum because along that spectrum when anything happens to you you constantly think well 
should I have then done something? Should I have reported it? And if so, maybe I, I wouldn't mm. be in this situation if I had reported it. And also, as soon yeah. as you tell that story to somebody else, like as soon as you share that trauma, the first thing people will say, because yeah. normally people don't really know what to say, is like, oh, did you report it? Or what did you do? Did you tell someone? Did, and then automatically the the situation yeah. is then being turned yeah. and, it's, and it's on you and you're suddenly like oh my god what yeah. did i do this about awful it? thing has happened this exactly this awful thing's happened to me and now i have to do something about it and it's so unfair <laughs> it's the same dilemma that i end up with racism in all its forms and i i'm really moving away yeah. from this i described recently it feels like i'm constantly doing a trade-off between my energy and my integrity where to confront it and do something about it takes up a whole load of my energy. Mm. But if I don't, then I feel like I've compromised my integrity because I haven't stood up for what I believe in. When actually, I know I need to move away from that that kind of binary because mm. it's not fair to myself to say that I've mm. compromised my integrity or like who I am if I don't do something about something bad that happens to me. And I think it's really similar with with sexual violence or all the different ways that people can be victimized you know and I think actually now I'm at a point where I can more comfortably say someone was racist what did you do nothing because I didn't have the energy that day you know exactly people immediately respond in unhelpful ways exactly you don't have to (laughs) it's not your problem to solve it says yeah it's harder to get comfortable with I had this episode of sexual violence what did you do about Mm. it you can't just go nothing because I couldn't be you know didn't have the strength at that time and then you know that people's reactions are like okay 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 should be problem should be problem solving you know i often think that a lot of people do try and offer a bit of problem solving and like often that's not always what you need when you're just trying to literally voice Mm. what's happened or own it or just Mm -hmm. like think a lot of the time I suppose maybe it's human nature to want to be able to help someone or to offer something that's going to make it better. But like with experiences of sexual violence, like it's not always possible to do that for somebody. And I think there's a lot that the loved ones of survivors need to learn. And I think do over time, probably it's not about like problem solving. (laughs) It's literally about being there to support and like give love and empathy and compassion and offer strength but it's not always about kind of trying to problem solve Mm -hmm. I think as well like often and it's not this isn't just a kind of gendered issue but Mm -hmm. often men will be so shocked at kind of how bad survivors are treated through the criminal justice system and and their options of reporting and getting support and getting counselling or any any kind of support. I just think sometimes I just want to ask people who don't know anybody who's been affected, like, what are you doing? Because often people start to criticise and feel like, wow, this is so bad, like, how are we in this place as a society? But they don't do anything about actually creating any change or trying to demand better for survivors until often it, like, personally affects them or mm-hmm. somebody they know. And I just think it's quite a sad state in, of society when we only really care about something when it's personally affecting us and otherwise we can just like turn a blind eye and that's I think what a lot of people do do because it just feels 
are too big to try and like engage with unless it's you know personally affecting you yeah completely and that's why it's so important to have accounts where people can come forward with their experiences and like put them into the public eye and put them out there to raise awareness about these kind of things because they're happening to everyone and as you say unless someone is personally affected by something it doesn't seem to gear them into action but that's why it's so important to put these things out there for people to pay attention to even if it's not happening to them because it Mm. should be on their agenda it is frustrating and i think that frustration is justified i think that frustration is completely justified and Mm -hmm. i think it's okay to be with the frustration and you don't have to be able to do loads with it. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, in reality, people are waking up every single day. And as you said, it's a progress. No one is perfect. But if you are tuning in and engaging and trying and being the best ally you can whilst constantly educating yourself, not demanding that education and emotional labour from other people, then you are in a good place. We just have to encourage and try to keep encouraging other people to keep engaging with that journey. And it's fine to be imperfect, but as long as you are... yeah in progress then that is something (laughs) so at this part of the show i would like to read out our submitted story of sexual harassment and this story was sent in by b i was coming home from a club night when i felt the presence of a large group of men i had never been so suddenly aware of my outfit and how inappropriate my shoes were. They surrounded me while shouting things at me that I still can't even repeat to my own mother and tried to grab me. I screamed at them through tears as I tried to break away. I took my heels off and ran the whole way home, trying to stave off a panic attack. I sat on the edge of my parents' bed and cried and cried. I have never worn those heels again. So firstly, thank you B so much for sending in that story. I think the last sentence in that is something that is really resonating with me mm-hmm. the I've never worn those heels again part because yep I think we without even realizing it really associate clothes with with instances like that it's not even I honestly think at some point you know when I was listening to this mm-hmm. I was thinking oh I feel like there are people that genuinely think that women are still going on about feeling like they can't wear set or certain clothes because of these experiences, like, almost for the fun of it. Mm. But it's so true. Like, I look back at how it ways that I dressed when I was younger, like, tiny skirts and tiny, tiny tight dresses and, like, massive heels. Mm-hmm. And, yes, I don't dress in the same way, in partly because I've, like, just, like, changed and evolved. But, honestly, a whole load of it is that I just cannot be asked with the experience of increased, let's, let, let's, let's be very clear, not because I can't be asked to experience sexual harassment or sexual violence, because I can't mm-hmm. be asked to experience increased sexual harassment, yeah. harassment, harassment and sexual violence. And I'm so sorry that B went through that because mm. I can, oh, when you're reading it, I could literally, my hands are sweaty because I could feel that feeling when yeah. you actually start to realise, I think the option now is to run. And actually, it's so weird in your head because you're kind yeah. of thinking, oh, my God, am I going to run? This is going to make me feel more vulnerable and I probably don't need to run. But I need to run. I need to. And it's also competing. And yeah, I think it's I think it's easy for me to say, oh, I, I wear them because I don't wear those things anymore because I can't be asked with it. But actually, like maybe really I'm scared to wear those clothes. Maybe actually I am too scared to wear a skirt that's that tight and short. And it's easy to say that yeah. I can't be asked with it. But I think that's a very flippant representation, to be honest with you. I think there's actually probably a reality where 
I'm too scared to walk around in the clothes that I wore when I was younger that, you know what, like, I had so much fun in. And I'm like really smiling, thinking about myself and my girlfriends and some of those outfits because we were just mm. like young and gorgeous and just getting dressed up for each other and wanting to have <laughs> yeah. the most fun. And like, we used to wear those same outfits, whether it was just us going out for pure girl time or whether we were hoping to flirt with boys or like sometimes we dress up in those outfits and literally just dance around in my living room together. Yeah, exactly. That's when I'm most likely to wear those things now, you know? Mm. I feel for B and I relate to her mm-hmm. and like you associate these, those, you, you associate your shoes and your clothes with experiences of being violated and it just becomes easier not to have to deal with more of it because it's bad enough that, you know, it gets hot and you want to wear a sleeveless mm. top. So yeah I guess I could do without high heels you do know what I mean absolutely I think also like there's something about this story that just makes me kind of think about how much internalized shame that we all hold on to how much the words that other people put on us Mm. like are so difficult to shake off sometimes and how much we internalize these things and and as much as we can maybe in our conscious brain like understand that actually we don't deserve to be victim blamed or that we don't deserve to be shamed Mm -hmm. for our outfit choices or the shoes we wear when people say those things there still sometimes is a part of us that questions ourselves as much as we know it's not true there's that exhibition by I think it was by a German artist called what were you wearing And the exhibition is literally pieces of clothing that survivors were wearing when they experienced sexual violence. Literally, the exhibition just shows the massive variety of things that people were wearing. Like some people were wearing tracksuit bottoms and some people were wearing pyjamas. It's just a visual representation of actually this is nothing to do with what we're wearing. Yet we still Mm. hold on to that so much because it's it's literally forced down our throats by the media, by people who do victim blame. And and it's so much of a commonly thought thing that we don't know what um, that group of men exactly. um, said to be, but likelihood is that they made a correlation between what she was wearing and her sexuality, which is just so wrong on so many levels. Exactly, and like exhibitions like those completely debunk the myth that mm. women, girls, non-binary people, everyone, anyone experienced these things because of what they were wearing, because of somehow they were inviting the attention. Because that's the reality of it is that these things mm. happen all the time, whether you're wearing a full tracksuit or a tiny skirt. It's, you know, as you were saying before, Maya, about going out all the time when you were lift, like younger and wearing short skirts and stuff and how you wouldn't really kind of do that now. And I think a lot of people my age, they don't dress the same way that they did when they were 15, 16, because they do have this inbuilt awareness now and a consciousness, a very like self-consciousness about the direct response that will happen from wearing a certain item of clothing, just because you have been experiencing that since you were about 15. And you kind of already have that inbuilt into you now to think, to make that association with like, oh, okay, short dress is that gonna garner the wrong kind of attention can I be bothered with that today you know and it's almost like a subconscious thought process sometimes you're not even thinking about it you're not even kind of like okay I'm not gonna wear this skirt because I might get sexually harassed Mm. you just with me sometimes I just don't even like pick those items of clothing up anymore because I'm just like nah which is fucked up and I should be able to wear whatever Mm. I bloody want I think as well like I think for me personally, because I've got quite big breasts and I always kind of have from maybe like 12 years old, yeah. I 
think it just came a point where I'm literally too tired to try and even like deal with that so I'd always prefer to cover up because it's like I, I just don't even want to yeah I don't even want to try and express myself really in terms of how I dress I'd prefer to like blend in mm. a little bit mm. exactly well yeah so thank you again B so much for sending in that account I'm sure there are so many people who can identify and relate to this experience I just want to kind of ask you guys now what advice would you have for survivors on people who have experienced trauma and maybe who haven't found the right moment or person to speak about it with I think that it's really important to remember in a time where it feels like everything can feel time pressured now and that you have to join in with things at the right time and like now could feel like the moment to talk about these experiences or whatever because of what's going on in social media or the movement towards more fe- people feeling able mm-hmm. to. But that ultimately there, there, isn't, there isn't a rush and that you don't have to rush yourself to explore anything with anyone that you're not ready to do yet. I think that I look back on my own um, coming to terms of sharing things and I think there's a lot to be said for sharing privately, just noting down your thoughts, writing down little bits, maybe writing letters to yourself or someone else. I find things all the time that I've written over the years um, and they're so, I can so piece together how they were part of my Mm -hmm. processing. I wrote letters at one point to the different my mum's different abusers at one point I wrote letters to my mum from myself at different ages so it was like the top of the letter would be like I'm writing this to you from my perspective in 1998 when I was seven or whatever so I did a lot of processing on my own about thinking about what I would want to say to who um, and how And, and I think I got a lot from that because sometimes the thing that's really the thing about sharing or saying things out loud is it's just so hard to even say them outside of your head and there's something about writing it on a piece of paper that you may or you that you know that you may well screw up and get rid of or what ever that somehow takes it outside of your head um but i think be do be gentle with yourself and be kind of careful and and just because it's just i think being a little bit careful that you don't rush yourself into sharing anything or with anyone that you that you don't feel entirely comfortable doing and that ultimately if that person is the right person they'll be there for you the following week it doesn't matter if you don't manage to get it out that time yeah and another thing is I think that can be helpful is that if you do have a sense that there is a person that you could tell that you want to tell or want to talk to about things is that remembering that, that you don't have to do that all in one go and sometimes it can be helpful to say there's something hard that I want to discuss with you but I don't know if I'm ready yet. And then you've let that person mm-hmm. know. And then you can kind of come back to it a little bit. It's like, I'm wondering if I can go back to that conversation that I said um, that I wanted to have. I think I feel a bit ready to have a bit more of it. Um, and another thing that I have that I think is useful is sometimes it can be really helpful to think about what you don't want the other person to do. Because what we have acknowledged is that often people... Um, with all the goodwill in the world, will respond in ways that you just might find really unhelpful. So, for example, if you do have a clear sense that what you'd really prefer is that the person doesn't give advice, it can be really helpful to say, I'd like to tell you something, but 
this is no offence to you, but I'd really appreciate if you didn't give me any advice as I don't feel able to receive that right now. So would it be possible for me to just talk and you not say mm. anything back? Or um, you might want to say, look, I want to talk really critically about my mum and you're probably going to agree with me in many ways, but sometimes I get really sensitive if you, if you over-agree. So I know this is hard, but can you not try and say anything bad about her? whilst I do and just things like that thinking about what would make it hard if what would make that conversation hard for you and and how can you set some of those boundaries a little bit yeah that's really important so yeah writing setting boundaries for the conversation and remembering that the conversation can happen in stages it doesn't have to happen all at once yeah thank you so much for that advice I think that's so 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 helpful thank you so much it's been such a pleasure having you both on the show it's a pleasure to be here thanks for having us thank you yeah holding space for us to have a chat where can people find you and your work um and connect with 100 women i know um so the main place really um to connect online is through our instagram page which is just at 100 women i know we also have a website which is 100 women i know.com and yeah hopefully once we get back to some sense of normality we might host an event not sure when that will be but yeah we hope to come together yeah at some point in the future amazing thank you so so much for doing this and i hope you have a really good rest Thanks of so your much, weekend Eliza. thank you and you too i can't wait to listen to the other episodes <laughs> yeah for sure Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Cheer Up Love podcast and a special thanks to my guests for coming on and to the members of the Cheer Up Love community for sending in your stories. If you would like to submit your story to the podcast then just DM us on Instagram or submit via our website. If you like what you've been listening to please subscribe and leave a review it would mean a lot. And also lastly an extra special thank you to Alex Grooves who composed the wonderful music that you've been listening to.